0: John chapter 12, if you'd open your Bibles there, seven, seven days. Uh, it's uh, difficult to measure uh, the impact of just seven days, yet in all of human history, uh, there have been no more powerful seven days than those seven days. Jesus accomplished more in seven days than uh, anyone ever has, uh, and no life is exempt Uh, from the implications of those seven days, and no life is excluded from the hope and the new life that is offered there. This morning, we begin our consideration of the celebration of Easter, and we do so with a message I've titled, Wishful Thinking. Uh, It was uh, A.D. 33, that was the year. Incredible excitement uh, filled the air in Jerusalem, and you could feel it. It It was palpable. Jewish pilgrims had gathered from all over the world. They were there uh, in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, and word had spread that Jesus, this 30-something itinerant prophet, uh, rabbi, and healer, had just demonstrated the power to raise the dead by raising a man named Lazarus in the town of Bethany, just about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Many people uh, would make the short walk from Jerusalem to Bethany, hoping to see Jesus and Lazarus alive again. Uh, And the result of their trip was that they believed in Jesus. And as they returned to the capital city, uh, they returned with with reports of his miracle working power. And in addition to everything else that could be told of Jesus, news that he even had the power to raise someone back to life, uh, left the Passover crowds in Jerusalem like a pressure cooker, ready to explode. People were filled with a messianic fervor and with a hatred of the rule of Rome. Whispers. Whispers of revolution uh, floated through the air in first century Palestine, and Jesus, with his teaching authority, with his ability to captivate the crowds uh, and to capably uh, minimize his critics, not to mention his ability to raise the dead, Jesus, uh, Jesus was very much the part of the long-awaited Messiah, a king from the line of David who would restore the throne of David uh, and do so for eternity. It was Sunday, March the 29th, A.D. 33, the first of the last seven days of Jesus' earthly life, and Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. We're given in the Bible four uh, eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We call them the Gospels. They particularly focus on this final week in the life of Jesus. And each of the writers uh, provide for us a unique perspective on the person of Christ. And it's the, the composite of them together that gives us the fullest understanding of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us. Matthew presents Jesus Christ as uh, the rightful heir to the throne of David. He is the king. Uh, Mark presents Jesus as a servant. Uh, He comes saying, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Luke, uh, a physician, presents Jesus Christ as the son of man. And John presents Jesus as the son of God. Uh, These are uh, not four different Gospels, uh, not four unique uh, Gospels. They're actually one Gospel given to us by four different witnesses. And the result for us today is that as we read the Gospel account some 2,000 years later, we have this experience that is expressed by Peter, the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, where he says, "'Though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible.'" And filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, why were these eyewitness accounts written? The Greek word for eyewitness means to see for yourself. And it is very much God's intent that as we uh, consider the Gospels, as we consider the life of Jesus Christ, we would see for ourselves. Uh, John's Gospel, from which we will consider uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus uh, into Jerusalem today. He perhaps uh, says it most clearly in chapter 20 where he writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and wishful thinking Fill the hearts and minds of everyone there. The Romans were wishfully thinking that this would be just another uh, religious celebration by the Jews that would come and go without incident. That no one uh, would uh, get any crazy ideas. That no uprising uh, in rebellion to Caesar would cause them to have to crush it with force. The religious leaders were wishfully thinking that no one would do anything to mess up their uh, celebration of what had become an external uh, works-based religion. Uh, They were hoping that no one would interfere with the arrangement they had bartered with the Romans that had left them empowered uh, and enriched to continue uh, to run the religious establishment. And the masses, the people, they were full of wishful thinking, hoping that, that this Jesus was the Christ. That he would be the conquering king who would come by force and reject Rome's rule and put the religious establishment in their place and then deliver them from the stifling, self-righteous legalism that had become Judaism. You ever play the game of wishful thinking? Of course you have. There's not a person in this room that hasn't likely lulled themselves to sleep wishfully thinking about winning the lottery or finding true love or getting that coveted uh, promotion at work, or a new job opportunity, or maybe even a car. And regardless of what we uh, really believe about the idea of God, as we said here this morning, we are all capable uh, of even wishfully thinking about what this higher power can do for me, as though a genie in the bottle. We have the capacity to mentally visualize what might be. We can always envision how our life could be different if someone would just do something for us. And there's a fine line between vision, which is a mental picture of a preferred future, and uh, wishful thinking or daydreaming, uh, which is a a wishful creation of the imagination that serves as a distraction from reality. And herein lies the problem. All of our wishful thinking uh, tends not to square with reality. And that is precisely the circumstance we find uh, in John chapter 12 as Jesus comes to Jerusalem. The next day, the large crowd had come to him, come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, "...fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seeing, sitting on a donkey's colt." His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, uh, they, they then remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him is that they had heard what he had done, that, that he had done this sign." So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after Him. Visiting crowds and the residents of Jerusalem are filled with expectation, and Jesus doesn't disappoint. On Sunday morning, Jesus and his disciples make their way uh, by descent down to the Mount of Olives, and from that vantage point, Jesus sends two of his disciples uh, into the city of Bethany to acquire there a donkey uh, and her colt, on which he will sit as he enters Jerusalem. Uh, this, uh, Jesus makes this uh, intentional symbolic action to declare that he is the king who is coming and he's met with the expectant crowds, understanding that he is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy written 500 years before this time in Zechariah 9.9, where Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." And as Jesus makes his way, his, his descent from the Mount of Olives toward the holy city, the crowds rightly interpret what Jesus is doing, and they respond with exuberance by laying palm branches and their robes as though to create a red carpet into the city of Jerusalem. They acclaim Jesus to be uh, the Davidic king who's come to reestablish the throne. And this brings to mind the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, where we read these words. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The crowds are openly acclaiming that Jesus is king and not Caesar. We simply can't underscore the gravity of this moment, how it would have caused a shockwave through the city of Jerusalem. Matthew and Luke tell us that the Pharisees instruct Jesus to rebuke the crowds for their dangerous exuberance, assigning to Jesus the fulfillment of messianic prophecy, but Jesus refuses, saying to them in Luke 19, I tell you if the people do, are, were silent the very rocks would cry out. It's difficult to overestimate the religious and political ramifications of Jesus' actions what he incites here. The Pharisees are completely caught off guard and have no idea how to respond. Jesus' deliberate actions set in motion a chain of events that can only end in one of two ways. Either he will throw off Rome and relegate the religious establishment to their right place, or he will suffer a brutal death. Jesus has crossed a point of no return. One might argue that prior to this day, Jesus could have stayed in the outlying areas of Israel and lived a long life doing what he does, but he did not. And in coming to Jerusalem, he comes knowing there is no turning back. We have so much in common with the people in Jerusalem on that day. Everyone wants Jesus to be something of their own making, of their own liking. Are we really that different 2000 years later. Like the Romans, many people uh, are content to let Jesus be whatever he wants to be as long as it doesn't affect their life. They're okay with it. Like the religious uh, crowd, many in our day uh, just want to silence him. They reject the notion that they should be confronted by a man who was executed uh, 2000 years ago uh, for the crime of claiming to be God. And many, like the masses, are content to have. A little bit of Jesus, as long as it's on my terms. Anything more than that, and I can turn on him in seven days. On that, as it was on that Sunday, so it is in our own day. Wishful thinking must be confronted by reality. You see, Jesus didn't come for the whims of wishful thinking, but for a cause. And here's where uh, the singular uniqueness of Jesus Christ comes colliding against who we are. Jesus came with a purpose. Scriptures make it plain to us that he had long been driven by this particular week in Jerusalem. You and I uh, are quite random. In fact, there was a time when uh, we did not exist, and it's kind of dumb luck that our parents actually got together and we became the byproduct of that. And we live most of our lives uh, with this sense of uncertainty, unpredictability about what comes next. And so we tend to gravitate toward avoidance of suffering and pain and heartache, and we're constantly seeking something that satisfies. Not so with Jesus. Jesus came at a specific moment in time and for a specific purpose. This is a literal fact of history. In fact, when Jesus is just a young boy, and his parents have traveled for this same week for Passover, and they depart from the temple, and Jesus remains behind, when they find Jesus, do you remember what Jesus tells his parents? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? From early on, Jesus knew the purpose for which he had came, and it would not deter him from going to Jerusalem, even if he knew that the option was not going to be overthrowing Rome and relegating the religious establishment to their place the reason he came was to suffer a brutal death jesus was so clear about the purpose of his coming that in luke chapter 9 verse 51 we read these words when uh, when the days drew near for him to be taken up he set his face to go to jerusalem i submit to you if we knew that much about our future we would have run the other way but not this jesus he comes to jerusalem it's for this very reason that C.S. Lewis writes that when you consider the life of Jesus Christ, you really have one of three options. He is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is who he says he is, he's Lord. Jesus', was come, Jesus coming was also a historical hope. There's a, no wondering why the people responded as they did. They were longing to see a, a son from the line of David reestablish Israel to its greatness. And this harkens all the way back to 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 16, when God says to David, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Those words were written 1,000 years before the time of Jesus Christ. You see, unlike our beginnings, Jesus' coming was always a moment in the making This is not the first time Jesus came to Jerusalem, but it is the time that matters most. Jesus is coming uh, precisely for these seven days, and that is a prophetic promise. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 tells us that he is the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 tells us that he is the child who is born, the son who is given. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us that he is the one sent from God whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient times. Jesus' coming precisely for these seven days is also decreed by God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says that God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. You and I speculate on what a future might bring for us, but Jesus knew with crystal clear clarity that his coming was for the purpose of dying, and that in dying, he would make a way for us to have life. On this particular occasion, though, why did Jesus come? Verse 15 tells us that Jesus was coming to be king. There's a contrast between ascendancy uh, to power in this life and the path that Jesus chose uh, to become king. Uh, In our world, uh, a person acquires power and then they have to fiercely defend it for a period of time and then it passes to someone else, whatever level of power you're at. Not so with Jesus. Jesus came to reestablish the kingdom of God. And so as the people sang an Old Testament promise, behold your king, in a very real sense, Jesus was fulfilling the Davidic covenant. He had come to reign upon a throne. The idea of king in the Old Testament is closely linked to the word Messiah uh, or the Greek word Christ. It means deliverer. But the problem that the people had, the wishful thinking they were caught up in, was that they only had one concept of what a deliverer would look like, someone who would lead an army, who would crush a rebellion, and then who would physically sit upon a throne. And we consider the week of Jesus' passion, and it's bittersweet to us. Uh, It seems, as it were, an epic tragedy, but it's only because we delude ourselves in our thinking. Because as we consider the Scriptures, we trace the promise of God's coming. We, we see uh, the prediction of His coming. Jesus actually proffers Himself to be king, and then He's rejected. But it is only in the rejection that we come to understand or realize the purpose of His coming. The unmistakable takeaway of Palm Sunday is that the masses marked the moment of Jesus' coming, But they missed its significance altogether. They were looking for a certain kind of deliverer, a physical, an external deliverer, but Jesus came to set our hearts free. Jesus came to deliver us uh, from that which plagues us most, our own sin. See, many people, uh, even in our day, come to Jesus with ideas of what they want him to be, but Jesus will not change his agenda. If you would know Jesus, if you would be redeemed by Jesus, then you must know he's after your heart. He has no problem changing the exterior of our lives, but he can only do so when he has all of us. And in as explicable as it is to us, the the Israelites had gathered in Jerusalem for millennia to celebrate this idea of Passover, which harkens back to God's deliverance from uh, Israel from Egypt, but it points to the forward coming of Messiah, who will again permanently deliver them. And every year when they celebrate Passover and the Messiah had not come, they would toast and say, next year in Jerusalem, wishfully thinking, maybe next year. Messiah will come. And every year, Passover evolves around a series of psalms, Hallel psalms. And Psalm 118 is one of those psalms. We read in Psalm 118, these words, I shall not die, but I shall live, and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It was my mom's favorite verses, I grew up hearing that. And while it's true in a general sense that it applies to every day that God makes, like today, prophetically, this psalm is talking about the day... When Christ would purchase redemption and be raised to life. Do you see it? It's it's not a light uh, and simple thing that you can read the words of Psalm 118 and your head knows that it speaks of Christ and your heart whispers to you, My Jesus. Is that your response to Psalm 118? Because few have seen it. And if we see it, it is because the Spirit of God has convicted us of the truth that the King was coming. And that in His coming, He wasn't coming uh, to fulfill the whims of our wishful thinking. He was coming to liberate us from sin. If your head does not convince you, if your heart does not tell you that Jesus is King, then I would implore you to consider the gospel. Galatians chapter 4 The Apostle Paul tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus' entry was triumphal because uh, this week would see Him accomplish what the Father sent Him to do. Uh, It's tragic that they would not see it or that we would not recognize it because of our wishful thinking because Jesus is more. There is more to His coming. He is king. In a myriad of ways, King Jesus reveals God to us. This is the point of the incarnation. He makes God known to us according to John 1. King Jesus provides the example for us in John 13 of what it looks like to live and serve other people meaningfully. King Jesus is the servant who suffers in our place, Isaiah 52 and 53. King Jesus provides an effective payment for sin in John chapter 1. King Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John chapter 3 verse 8. King Jesus is the high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And King Jesus alone is qualified to be judge, John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Jesus is king in all of these ways and a myriad of others, but his reign is not a temporal thing to be measured by an earthly throne and physical boundaries and the passage of time. It is rather a, a kingdom of eternity It uh, is greater than this time, but it includes all of this time. And as such, it is a kingdom that must begin its reign in the hearts of men and women. In light of the patient, long coming of God, and the protracted case study of human history to demonstrate how deeply sinful and broken and scarred we are, it should not surprise us that God had mar- far more in mind in sending Jesus than to have him win the popular vote to be king over a corrupt people. He did not come to throw off rum. He did not come to reform Judaism. He came to die a cruel death as a payment for our sin. But in wishful thinking, they missed it. As much of the world misses it today. And as seemingly tragic as the injustice of these seven days in the life of Jesus are to us, please understand, rejection was not a surprise to God. He saw it coming. John chapter 1 verse 10 says, He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. John chapter 3 verse 19, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John chapter 5 verse 39 through 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet it is they that witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Our wishful thinking amounts to a blind hope of how we hope things will go in the next 15 minutes next week, next year, decades from now. But Jesus knew precisely why he had come. He had been staring at this seven-day period since eternity passed, and rejection and suffering were just part of the plan of what it was required to secure for his creation, forgiveness of sin and redemption. In fact, long before the sun sets on this day, Jesus calls his shot Listen to the words of destiny in John chapter 12, verse 23 through 24. Jesus says, uh, Jesus answered them, the hour has come that the Son of Man is to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And again in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and, when, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. The unmistakable takeaway of Palm Sunday is that the masses, uh, with deluded, wishful thinking, marked the moment of his coming, but they missed its significance. Yet an undeniable truth also comes from Palm Sunday. As long as there had been a promise, as long as there was a prediction of God's coming, there were people of faith who were longing and looking for the one who would come. And history is full of people who have encountered Christ and found that Jesus makes all the difference in life. The confrontation which is coming to a head in this week of the life of Jesus with the religious establishment is a conflict over sin. On Monday, Jesus is going to cleanse the temple. He's going to shock yet again the religious establishment by taking a whip and driving people out of the temple for their disregard for God's holiness. On Tuesday, Jesus is going to uh, engage the religious establishment in a series of controversies in which he will issue seven rebukes or seven woes. In these rebukes, Jesus is going to continually refer to them as hypocrites This is only going to end one way, and it's ending on God's terms. This is the reason your Jesus came, to live this week and to hang upon a cross so that God the Father would place on him your iniquity and he would pay the price for your sin so that you might be redeemed back into a relationship with the God who created you and loved you. In these seven rebukes, Jesus reaches the seventh rebuke, which is the sharpest rebuke. And what he rebukes them about is their tendency to kill the prophets, of which he is the greatest. Again, Jesus knows something that others don't. He came for this purpose, to die for our sins. And while this conflict involved everyone in the city of Jerusalem on that day, it also involves all of us. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 speaking of the suffering servant says all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was coming to be king but it was a king a kingdom that he would purchase with the sacrifice of his own life. The good news for you and I today is that Jesus still comes today. Though he is celebrated by palm branches and praises by weeks end Jesus will be rejected. He is not presently seen reigning on a physical throne over all things, but make no mistake, Jesus is king. There's a special kind of wishful thinking in our day, a wishful thinking that says in some instances, uh, something so rooted in antiquity can't have anything to do with me, that surely I'm not expected to live my life based upon something 2,000 years ago when they scarcely had indoor plumbing and no higher education There's a a kind of wishful thinking that that wants to distance from uh, the life of Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross to say uh, that I'm in some way uh, contributing as I live a good life. You know, I'm an American. It's, It's part of my birthright. Surely God will be impressed by who I am. But friends, Jesus has come to be king. And if he's not your king today, you should know that he's still making a bona fide offer. But he will only be king as we allow him as we yield our hearts to him, and he will require all of us. He wants you to dethrone yourself from your own life. He wants you to stop being God, and he wants you to invite him to be the king over your life. And it's wishful thinking to think that it's wise to put this off. It's wishful thinking to think that, well, I, I've got plenty of time to live, I wanna, I've got so many things I want to do, I don't want to shut myself down by having to be accountable or answerable to God, I'll wait when you don't know what tomorrow brings. What we do know for certain is that Philippians chapter 2 tells us that there is coming a point. Because of the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who humbled himself to clothe himself with human flesh, to walk among us, and to suffer greatly the torment of the cross on your behalf and on my behalf, that God, because of that, has given to him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee... Every believing knee, every surrendered knee, every rebellious knee, every disbelieving knee, every atheistic knee, it doesn't matter who, every man, woman, and child will rightfully take their place on their knees before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The question is, will we rejoice in that moment that He is my King? Or will those words fall from our mouth, knowing that we have rejected Him, as so many will do? in this final week of Jesus' life. The good news, John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, tell us that he came to his own, and his own received him not. But to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Jesus is still coming as a king. And if you cannot say this morning with peace in your heart, with with honesty in your head, that Jesus is your Lord, that he is your Redeemer, that you've been forgiven because of his work upon the cross, that you're not deluded by wishful thinking, he is your only hope. If you cannot say that, then the offer still remains. To those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. That is the offer for you today, if you don't know him. But there is also, in the story of Jesus, a precautionary warning. While Jesus is still coming today in this way that he offers himself as uh, uh, the, the entrance into salvation, the scriptures tell us that Jesus is also coming again. Before this week in Jesus' life is out, he will promise his return, Thursday in the upper room with the disciples. Yes, we will see uh, what appears to be on Friday the worst case scenario. Yes, Jesus suffers more than the whole world of humanity ever has combined. Yes, he will breathe his last and he will succumb to death. He will be sacrificed for the sins of humanity. It's difficult to even contemplate what Jesus endures on Friday. But sin, death, and the grave are powerless to keep him there. Come Easter Sunday morning, we will behold the wonder of wonders as the Father resurrects his Son to life, giving to him what he purchased on the cross, the right to impart life. As Jesus says in John chapter 5 verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes the Father who sent me has eternal life. This is what King Jesus and his followers, the church, are presently doing now. But one day He will return. And when He returns, He will not come as a suffering servant. He will come then as a conquering king. Revelation chapter 19 speaks of this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written so that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords." And friend, if you do not humble yourself before the coming King, when that moment comes, it will be too late. Jesus offers Himself to you freely by grace through faith. He has paid the highest price to cover your sin. All you and I must do is receive it. And in receiving it, we're repenting of our sin and believing, and we serve at that point a great king, but serve we must. Psalm 118, one of the Passover Psalms. For this reason, as the psalmist says, that the stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone, this is uh, the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord hath made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then the psalmist says, in light of that, save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How they missed it is inexplicable to us. And yet the fact that they did, which leads to Friday, has fallen to us as favor. Regardless of how we may view it at the moment, this week in the life of Jesus Christ are the seven days that changed the world. And what they teach us is that the only way to have a fruitful, um, lasting life is to follow Jesus with faith in His death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus lovingly and sacrificially comes as King, and He implores us to turn from wishful thinking and to surrender our lives to His benevolent rule. Surrender our lives, our broken, sin-stained lives, that we might know what it means to be forgiven and set free and have our feet set upon a path that leads toward godliness and holiness. It's a choice between a lost, lonely, broken existence and a forgiven, fruitful, belonging existence. It's a choice between losing uh, this life when, in its brevity, it is over and, and keeping new life in Him for eternity. It's a choice between serving myself, seeking satisfaction on my own terms, and yielding my life to serve Christ the way He has served me. It's a choice between pleasing ourselves in temporary fashion. And seeking God's honor eternally. On this day, March the 29th, AD 33, Jesus walked into a town called Jerusalem. He went there for you and I. He went there full knowing what the week was going to hold. Listen, this didn't happen to Jesus because he couldn't see it coming. He tells us he could have at any moment called uh, 10,000 legions of angels to his defense, and it would have happened. But he suffered humbly in silence to pay for your sin, to pay the indebtedness that we owe to God for our moral depravity. And he did this, friends, so that he might set us free, so that he might found a kingdom which will never end. A kingdom which he very much desires that we should be a part of. Why is this so essential? The Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 25. uh, Jesus says, listen, what would it profit you? What gain is it to you? If through wishful thinking you could have everything that this world has to offer and experience great satisfaction... What would it profit you when the brevity of this life is over if you've gained the whole world but you lost your own soul? Friends, I implore you. You are more than good experiences in this life. You are more than a body that is over time going to decay. I know some of you are young. You're full of vim and vigor. You feel unconquerable. But one of these days, you're going to notice the winds are shifting. I'm not who I once was. The truth is, you've been dying since the day you were born, but you were meant for more than this life. We were meant for eternity in the presence of the Father, made possible by the Son, who fixed his eyes on Jerusalem and in seven days forever altered the world. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the celebration that is Easter. I am so overwhelmed and full of awe and blown away that Lord Jesus, you would deliberately walk into the belly of the beast knowing what you were going to endure and you did so for me. I I pray you cleanse me over and over. I repent of the sinfulness that drove you to that place, and I ask you by faith to lead me to the life that you intended me to be. I thank you that for many here this morning, uh, this is a day of rejoicing, even though uh, we have to endure the torment of Friday. We know that Sunday's on its way. For the one here today, a man, a woman, who might not know you. I pray that they would see by contrast to a world of self-centered, selfish leaders, so-called leaders that Jesus stands singularly unique. You are incomparable, Lord Jesus, and you are worthy of our highest praise. I pray that the person who does not know you would consider the weight of eternity and they would humble themselves before you, before you come again. And we rejoice today, Lord Jesus, that you accomplished in seven days what none of us could accomplish in an eternity of lifetimes. You paid for our sin. You've adopted us into your family by grace through faith, and you have given us the hope of an eternity with you. In as we are united with Christ in his death, Paul says, so we too will be united with you in your resurrection. And for this, we wave palms and we sing praises for you are good and your grace is greatly to be praised. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to thank you for being with us this morning. Uh, This is a very big week uh, for the Church of Christ, uh, for uh, the celebration of the Passion Week, and so uh, we hope you'll join us this Friday, uh, 7 o'clock, for our Good Friday service. Uh, And then, as Trace mentioned earlier, again, on Sunday morning, uh, just encourage you to invite someone. There are this inviter card that's on the screen. There are uh, extras of those. 5,000 homes uh, in this area got that card, but you can always take another one and invite someone personally. Uh, I encourage you to do that uh, and and be with us. I also want to reiterate that we just want to have whoever God brings, and uh, we have three years of a track record. It's hard to know exactly what's going to happen. Over the past three years, we started really large, and then COVID, and, and then we started making our way back next year, but we're praying for a great year this year. And because of that, we just want to make sure we have enough at our brunch. Uh, The church uh, in partnership with 5Bs is providing the meat uh, and we're just asking for you to sign up for side dishes. So uh, last week we had on there, we were just encouraging people to make uh, a a side dish for about 20. We talked about that. We don't want that to deter anybody from signing up. I started thinking like in the middle of the night one night, how much is... Uh, macaroni and cheese for 20 people—that's—it's—it's that's, a crazy formula. But so if you can only make uh, macaroni and cheese for six people, I'm not—that's not—I'm not like putting in for macaroni and cheese. If you can only make enough for six people, sign up and make that. We, we just want to have enough for all of our guests. And then, uh, again, if you're a guest with us this morning, thank you for being here. You're a very special part of, uh, of what we do uh, in preparing the service. Uh, so this is a little inside baseball talk. You can just disregard it. But I just want to implore you as an insider uh, at Community Church, if God brings a crowd next week, I just want everybody to be uh, sharp. I want everybody to be ready to do whatever is required to take care of our guests. Can you do that for me? Amen. In Jesus' name. All right, stand up with me, would you? Jesus did many things that uh, are not in front of his disciples that are not contained in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Church, have you found life in Jesus' name? One more time. Amen. All right, so as you go out this week, uh, this is a big week for uh, our church. And I just want to encourage you to be the hands and feet of Jesus wherever you go. Uh, If you look at a checkout clerk at a store and they look like they might just be discouraged, you should say, hey, you should come to church this weekend uh, because it's going to be an exciting, encouraging message. And do your part to make disciples, bringing them to Jesus. Would you do that? All right, Say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and give you peace. And as you go, may you be like the disciples in the first century, making much of Jesus Christ for the work that he has done to liberate you from your sin. God bless you, church. You're dismissed.